for crypto to go mainstream or to achieve those goals that blockchain technology can bring us to, where the investment is most needed. I haven't seen a single show telling people, teaching kids about money or like how things work. That would be a fun show. It could be, you know, there, there's, but that's not considered important, but I think it's more important. Most kids are going to learn to read. They're going to get it somehow. And yes, early literacy is crucially, don't get me wrong, okay? But this stuff is also important. It's true because when you go to school, they kind of open up the world to you, what happened, the history, you know, the all different kind of topics. But they don't tell you actually how to survive. They don't tell you how to build a business. As you know, I'm a strong proponent and advocate for female empowerment and having more female founders, more female entrepreneurs, especially in crypto, digital assets and Web3. And today I'm going to share my conversation with one of those amazing female leaders, Sheila Warren, CEO of the Crypto Council for Innovation. Sheila is on a mission to making crypto more accessible, understandable, to build a more inclusive, transparent and efficient financial system that not only drives economic growth, but also empower individuals, community around the globe. And I'm so happy that I had the opportunity to discuss with her about some of the hottest topic in the crypto space, some of the latest development, the importance of the education and also the role of regulation and investment to make sure that actually blockchain technology technology can bring this uh, amazing value to a new economy and a new society that allows people to be empowered as well. So I really hope that you enjoyed this discussion. But before we get into the interview, remember that all the content here is for informational purposes only. We don't give or share any financial advice. So anything that you do, and we have also highlighted that in the podcast, you need to do your own research. You need to skill up and make sure any investment you make, you are happy with it because you know what you are doing and you educate yourself. Remember, education and information is power and is the key to success. And finally, I'm going to ask you a big favor. If you are one of those people that listen to our interviews but hasn't yet joined our community, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on social media not only to stay up to date with our news and interviews, but also to support us and give us feedback, which is really important for us to keep creating content that is valuable for our community. We are launching our Financial Fox NFT collection, which mainly focus on education, which has been a big theme for the Financial Fox since its inception, and also female empowerment. I want to see more female founders female entrepreneurs in the crypto space and in the technology space. So I'm on a mission to call all the women out there, join our community, because that's where you can get support, you can get help, and also you can get the energy you need to come out and start building and start creating what you want to be, you want to do, and be successful. Hi, Sheila, how are you? Hi, it's so good to see you. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, brilliant. It's really good to have you on as, um, you know, you are one of the, it's not the few, but definitely 
definitely one of uh, the female founders, entrepreneurs in the fintech and crypto space. And I really wanted to have you on the show, you know, to discuss not only your perspective as a uh, female leaders in crypto, but also, you know, your insight and your views on some of uh, the most uh, prominent topics in, uh, in the space right now. So thank you for, uh, you know, for accepting the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. I'm excited for our chat. Brilliant. So let's uh, get started. And uh, the first question is uh, going to be about uh, your background, your journey as a female leaders. If you can tell us uh, a little bit more and how you started, how you got in crypto, that would be fantastic. Sure. Well, I'll try to keep it as quick as I can. Uh, I think we all have such unique origin stories into what drew us to this exciting space. Uh, for me, I'm a lawyer by training. And after many years of practicing law, uh, I left the law to build a B2B SaaS product called NGO Source, uh, which is focused on helping charities, for foreign charities, foreign to the US, attract funding from US funders. So after I launched that project, I became uh, the general counsel of a company called TechSoup. And TechSoup is a giant social enterprise. It's a 501c3 charity, and it focuses on helping nonprofits, small nonprofits particularly, understand and use technology uh, via donations. Anyhow, we had launched a lot of work with activists and I became very concerned about the data of those activists and how securely we were holding it as securely as we knew how uh, encrypted everything else. But this was a time when there was just increased hacking attempts on civil society as a general matter. And I was very concerned about what to do about this. And so that's when I got interested in the blockchain as a possibility as an underlying architecture that could actually provide more security, a uh, different kind of encryption around sensitive data while preserving privacy. So that was really my origin story. Funnily enough, it really wasn't about the financial aspect of this, even though I had built a product focused on getting funding, like getting money you know, out of the US to foreign charities. Nevertheless, it was not actually the financial services component that drew me in first to blockchain technologies. It was actually data, data privacy, encryption, and, and those topics. Uh, and then, of course, you know, within a short period of time, I realized all the connections there. Uh, and then, you know, here we are. Here we are. Gosh, almost nine years later. Uh, this was all 2015 when all this happened. Wow. So you are really <laughs> an OG. <laughs> All depends who you ask, but yes, I suppose relatively so I am. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And uh, you have done uh, also some interesting work with the World Economic Forum. And I was quite interested to understand uh, your perspective and also the strategy that the World Economic Forum has been uh, implementing to get to use basically the blockchain technology to redesign a new economy, a new society, because we all say crypto is freedom, crypto is enabling uh, inclusivity, accessibility, financial inclusion, banking the unbank. So all amazing things that crypto can do for uh, a better world. So what was uh, the strategy at the time you were there with the World Economic Forum and what kind of approach they take towards uh, these 
goal? So yeah, it's a great question. So in 2017, I was hired to found the blockchain and as we called it the blockchain and DLT team at the forum. I subsequently changed that to the blockchain and digital assets. And then by the time I left the forum, almost five years later, I ran all of tech policy. So I oversaw everything, uh, data and AI and really all of it, like metaverse work, all of that work, XR, space, funnily enough, all reported into me uh, ultimately. Uh, but when I started there, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that what I was doing was helping to normalize the use of crypto, to normalize the use of blockchain technologies. Uh, and to say, you know, despite all the hype, despite all the sort of drama and, you know, excitement and intrigue around this space, fundamentally, there's something foundational that is revol of revolutionary importance, but it isn't like the sexy token go up, you know, kind of number orientation that a lot of people had to it. So the very first thing I did in 2018 was publish a paper called Blockchain Beyond the Hype. And it basically attempted to lay out, I consider myself a what I call a pragmatic optimist. So it was basically laying out a pragmatic optimist's view on this technology. And that was to say, you know, blockchain at the time was very much a hammer in search of a nail, as they say. It was blockchain for everything. Like everything should be on the blockchain. That never really made sense to me. It still doesn't today. Uh, and I also thought the technology was way too immature to move, you know, particularly sensitive things, you know, onto it, like voting or healthcare, health record, things like that. I thought it just wasn't ready for it at the time. Again, this was now seven years ago, almost uh, six and a half years ago. And so uh, it just, it, it was important to me to basically, like I say, normalize it. So I launched two big verticals. Uh, one was focusing on digital currencies, different kinds of digital currencies. I believe from the very beginning that we're going to have a world, which I think has manifested, uh, that will have a CBDC, CBDC stable coins and crypto. All of those are going to coexist. So I landed that framing and that became, you know, seen as gospel truth very quickly. And I think that's a lot of the work that that we did and how influential it was. We also did a lot of work around blockchain for supply chains. Uh, I hired an expert from um, Maersk, from the shipping company, um, who had been thinking about using this uh, in their shipping protocols. And we were able to make the case that when it comes to supply chains and the need to actually have visibility into where a digital object was, this was like a unique opportunity. And that has now become quietly integrated into many you know, supply chain kinds of opportunities around the world logistics and all those kinds of things. So to me, it was really about those two different opportunities. From there, the frame for me was always very civic tech oriented, right? So my entire career has been about civic technology, how can technology be used uh, for inclusion, for equitable access, uh, to, you know, increase opportunity for everybody, you know, the investment side of this has never been as interesting to me or compelling as the opportunity and access points. So I brought that to the WEF. And to me, it was crucially important that we always be talking about inclusion, equitive equity access all of these things and so i think we did a we did a lot of excellent work i'm very proud of thinking about financial inclusion being very honest about what a blockchain or crypto could solve and what it couldn't solve right if people can't get online or they don't have any access to a mobile device or anything else well that's a threshold problem that isn't solved by a blockchain so how do we connect all of these infrastructure you know education all of these issues together to say i do still believe the digital currency is that blockchain technology is part of of the solution, but it's only ever been a partial solution to a much bigger societal problem. And we tried to shine a light on that. That was my goal and my approach. Uh, we did a lot of research into exclusion patterns. So were there builders of color building? Was there enough access to uh, these technologies and education around them in different parts of the world? I had said again in 2017 that I really believed, and this also bore out, in addition to kind of like the multitude of currency options, that we were going to see more uptake uh, in the global south in emerging economies 
economies than we were going to see in kind of like highly developed economies. And that proved to be true because the use cases made a lot more sense. If you have a hyper volatile, hyperinflationary currency, you're going to be a lot more interested in you know a crypto option, right? In Bitcoin, for example, than if your money is just fine and you put a dollar in the bank and you get a dollar out and it's really the inflation is not as um, affecting you and your purchasing power on as regular basis. So all of these points, I think, were things I tried to land. But the the overall theme was, you know, blockchain is, is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. Crypto is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. How it winds up being embedded in our economy, in our architecture of the internet, all of that, we have a long journey. I was saying this in 2017, I still think it's true. Um, but the idea that this is something that just because it's overhyped at the time doesn't mean it should be ignored or dismissed. And, um, you know, I think we were very successful in landing that message. Super interesting. You mentioned about supply chain, because that is definitely a very strong use case, but quite yeah. hard to implement, especially when it comes down, for example, to, to food the supply chain how do you actually link the on-chain to the off-chain data right. that's kind of right. always been the problem that you know even now with the, the rwa which is another big theme uh, of tokenization of real world assets people still try to find or to create a link that is stable is reliable and is secure that's true you're absolutely right there is also another aspect that you mentioned again which is all uh, probably was just uh, the seeds in 2017 is uh, deep in now is uh, you know is a massive things but like interconnectivity of things and uh, with telecommunication company i think is there is definitely lots of things that uh, are maturing right now now and um, when when you talk about inclusivity and diversity i think uh, the element of uh, having more women as well active in our economy and society in other area that perhaps are not so well known to be mainly female oriented or uh, you know and i'm talking about finance that's all my career has been uh, you know there should be only one woman in the room and that's going to be me so all the women that they are going That's to right. fight that. There is no bro culture. Is is really bad. And I don't know if that is something that at the WEF you have looked at of how maybe crypto oh, yes. can empower women. Yeah, I did look at that. Uh, the the WEF puts out every year something called the the I think it's called the Global Gender Gap Report, and it reports on it's just it's very systematic metric. It's excellent report. Systematic metrics on women and in the and gender equality or lack thereof for the most part uh, by country by industry. It's a it's a really comprehensive report that's, again, extraordinarily well done. That's kind of one of the things that WEF does really well is these kind of big, the risk report, the global gender gap report, you know, year over year, seeing has there been change. There is change, but it's very slow. Uh, so to me, I mean, when it comes to financial inclusion, it is well documented, and we didn't necessarily repeat this work. It was already out there and done by many, including the UN, that shows that, you know, women, when women are in control of the financial resources of a family, the family's healthier, the kids are better educated, their just standard of living just rises significantly significantly versus if men are in control of the finances. And so as women became more empowered in certain parts of the world, and you know, were able to control the wallets, essentially, um, you saw that flow down to the children in particular, but also to the entire family and its stability. 
food insecurity went down, housing insecurity goes down, like all these things are well documented. So again, you know, I think with crypto, we needed to be very careful, especially back at that time to say, look, let's not oversell it. You know, let's not pretend that just having access to a digital wallet is going to solve all the problems. But it is certainly the case. And we've seen this in very repressive societies where women can have access to money of any kind, digital or otherwise, that is is not is secret in some cases, right, if that needs to be the case, or if it's something that they just have full control over, they tend to spend it on things that benefit and they tend to spend that in sort of a caregiving model to benefit everyone as opposed to going and spending it on, you know, some random purchase or whatever it is. So I think it's really important to have those conversations. And and we certainly uh, had a lot of those discussions, both internally at the forum and with the big partners that we worked with, which were, you know, hundreds of organizations around the world. Um, And I, you know, I I do think that I, I think that these are really complicated topics. You know, I think that uh, financial inclusion as a general matter has been waved around for a generation as like, you know, oh, this is the silver bullet solution to financial inclusion. No, this is a silver bullet. You know, and at the end of the day, this is about politics. It's about culture. It's about education. It's about technology, definitely. You know, but there's a lot that has to come together for us truly to solve the problems around financial inclusion and around access. Uh, And again, I I, I try to be very careful not to oversell any one part of that. You know, education is not going to fully solve the problem, right? Um, It's all these different things that have to come together. Now, to your point, what I've loved about the crypto ecosystem is I think Deepin, which you taught, is incredibly powerful as an opportunity, right? It is a potential way that we can solve last mile infrastructure problems. It's crucially important. It is still very new, but I've always believed that there are aspects of a token economy, token architecture, decentralized systems that are going to penetrate into places that there is no incentive for a super centralized entity, whether it's a government or other, you know, to engage, right? Because there's no real return on it, right? There's no real financial motivation. There may not be democratic voting pressure, you know, whatever it is, right? And this is, by the way, we tend to think about this as just being relevant in really impoverished countries. But I mean, they're impoverished parts of the United States. I'm an American and I I live in the United States. Uh, Currently, and there are definitely parts of the United States that suffer from lack of infrastructure, lack of access, all these kinds of things, right? Uh, in fact, in many parts of the country, the U.S. Postal Service was the main way that people got everything from information to money to couriers to all of that until very recently. So these are problems that are persistent. They are relevant across all economies, all cultures. I think the percentage of people clearly in the United States that suffer from these sorts of um, lack of access is lower than it is in other parts of the world for sure. But the problem is kind of fundamentally at its heart, one that is the same. So the more that we are thinking in an inclusive manner, because to to your point, you're not going to build an inclusive system if you're not deliberately setting out to do that, right? Like you have to have a lot of intentionality because it's hard. It's really, really hard. And if it's not your focus, if it's not something you are like every day on a daily basis, if you don't have metrics around it, it's not going to happen. You're going to just play to the wealthy kind of people that can sort of afford to experiment. And that's really not what I, I like to think we're trying to do here. I think it's also a question of sometimes to get diversity, you need to make an extra effort to get these people in. Because if we think about, okay, maybe there 
are lots of women engineers out there. There are lots of women that would like to stand up, but they don't. Let's talk about ethnicity or, uh, uh, you know, different uh, uh, race. There are people that they want to take an opportunity, but they don't because they, they have to break the barrier and, and sometimes they don't have the willingness to do it. So I think for diversity. It's exhausting, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You always have to fight the stereotype and it's not so easy. Now, one very interesting uh, points that you kind of uh, brought up and while I was listening at you I said I need to ask this question before we get into education for crypto to go mainstream or to achieve those goals that blockchain technology can can bring us to where the investment is most needed well this is a very okay, I have a lot to say about this it's a very interesting question right because I I believe to count as a true success you know however you want to define it uh, we we have to hit the mainstream. You know, we can't be something that is so esoteric that only highly technical people or, you know, certain uh, socioeconomic classes or only the wealthy or whatever use it. Like, that's not to me, like, great. I mean, who cares? You know, it's just not that interesting, right? For me, it is about mainstreaming. Uh, that's super important. And so I always saw my job, as I said, as normalizing this to say it's not scary. You're not a criminal if you're using it. You know, at th that time, that was highly relevant in 2017 to 18, right? You're not a criminal if you're buying, you're not stupid if you're, you know, etc. And but but mainstreaming it is the part of the builders. It has to be an easier, you know, user interface. We're getting there, you know, we're getting there, but it's still not that easy. I think the ETF and things like that kind of help. Um, but in my mind, there's there's this kind of sometimes this sort of snooty resistance, I would say, this kind of snobbiness on the part of you know some of the OGs that are like, well, this really should only be for people that are fully bought in on the whole, you know, liberation, currency liberation concept politically. And it's like, well, no, no, mm, that can't be true, right? Because there have to be different political philosophies, entry points, access points, opportunities within the system for it to mainstream. Because most people, most people, right, are not super tech savvy engineers. Most people, right? They're also not like um, highly wealthy people that can take on a ton of risk. They're not that that's not most people. That is a tiny sliver of the world's population. So to some extent, you know, to your point, who are we building for? So I often say I often ask this. I used to ask this question in 2017. I used to call out the industry all the time. Be like, who are you building? Who is your audience? Who do you think your market is? Who do you think your customers are? Who do you think your community is? And some people would answer honestly. And it was always like a the honest answer. I always appreciated, but it was always like, oh, super tech savvy, you know, bros largely, right? Some people would pretend, oh, no, we're really doing blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, have you talked to those people? Have you asked them what they need? Have you, you know, so in civic tech, this is a concept called build with not for, which is extremely powerful. And the idea is when you're building to a market that you don't, you are not part of, which is almost always, by the way, because if you are building by definition, you probably are a person who is on the outside fringe of the broader population because you're able to build by definition, right? So who are you yeah. building this for? And then how are you incorporating that community or population into your build in a very systematic way to ensure that what you're building is relevant, is useful? So I tell this story a lot. And I told this at Ethereal, which was a consensus conference, I think like 2018. And, it, and I got so much, it was, I think it sent a shockwave into the community because people were kind of like, oh, I never thought of it this that way. But I'd spent 10 years in civic tech. It's a story of a, a charity called Play Pump. Okay. And I'll try to tell the story quickly. It's worth a Google. But Play Pump was 
was this idea. It was a, a way of getting water to communities. Okay. And so somebody went in and observed, I don't know who it was, somebody went in and observed that, oh, you know, it's really hard. One of the hardest things that to have happen in some rural parts of the world is to get water because you have to like walk a mile or two miles and get the pump the water and, you know, carry it back, whatever. And they thought, what if there were a way for the pumping to actually happen very quickly and for the pumping to be, you know, something that is done sort of as like play. And so they designed and built these merry-go-rounds, a carousel, okay? And when kids played on the carousel, it would pump the water. As the thing went around and around and around, it would pump the water. And the concept was, oh, as kids are playing, you know, they're using, they're converting their play and their energy, they're getting healthy and the water's getting pumped and it makes it easier for the women. They rolled these things out and it was an absolute complete disaster, okay? Because no one had bothered to ask the women or the community, like what might make sense here. And so the play pumps were built off the paths of where women would normally walk. It turned out you had to have a kid like 24 hours a day, basically running the merry-go-round to get enough water for the community, right? It also turned out that a lot of what was happening is these women were walking often together to go get water. They were organizing. They were talking about civic issues. They were sharing information, right? And as that stopped happening, it actually deteriorated and eroded the quality of civic engagement they could participate participate in, in their community. So the thing was like a complete nightmare. And it was all caused because nobody bothered to actually check in and be like, hey, is this a good idea? What do you think? Right? So this build with not for concept is really just I it's a, it's a shorthand phrase I think about a lot to remind myself like it is all it's very easy to have a paternalistic or patronizing attitude like, oh, this technology is going to be your savior, blah, blah, blah. It is only going to be helpful if it is something that there is buy in from the community around and they have checked it and said like, yes, that makes sense. It's relevant. It'll be useful. We can use it, you know, et cetera. Right. So anyhow, like I say, um, getting back to your point about diversity, another thing I talk about a lot in hiring is what I call crony bro hiring, which I see all the time. Okay. You see it in finance. And, and it's so funny because I say that term all the time and it's the one I made up, but no one ever is like, what do you mean? Everyone knows exactly what I mean. Right. Cause we've all seen it. It happens in finance. It happens in tech all the time. It used to happen a lot in law. It happens a lot less in law. I think the legal system has made tremendous strides in gender equality and demographics around um, a lot of these things, which is interesting to me that that's happened, but it hasn't happened in other places, right? It hasn't happened as much in finance or in tech as it's happened in the law. And there's a lot of lessons, I think, to take away from the practice of law and how many strides it's made in terms of uh, promoting women and creating networks and all of that. Regardless, I think a lot of folks thought, oh, well, the problem is education. If we just have more, to your point, if we have more educated women and they have the degrees and they graduate from the MITs and Stanford's and Harvard's and whatnot, then no problem. Completely false. The education problem has been solved for half a generation, right? Like if anything, there are more female engineers coming out of some classes than there are men, right? That's not the issue. It's crony bro hiring. It's like, these are, this was my rugby team. This was like the running joke. These are the guys that rode in my eight, you know, like, in, right? Like they were all in the, they were all, they all rode together. It's like, come on. This was my rugby class. This was my soccer, you know, whatever it is, they hire each other. Then they strike it big. They make a bunch of money. They fund each other's companies. They hire each other again. And it's this self-perpetuating cycle. The difference, I think, in law, right, is that no one strikes it that big. It's kind of more of a lockstep pay. So you make partner, partners. There's, It's pretty transparent if partners aren't getting paid the same. A lot of that can be addressed structurally. Whereas in tech, someone's startup is going to make, is going to be the unicorn billion dollar startup, right? And once that person's startup is the thing, they have all the money. They're going to then fund their friends friends, people that they recognize, people who are familiar, who tend to be mini them 
right? And that's a very normal thing to do, but it's hard to take a risk. Now, and I think this all comes back fundamentally. And the other thing I'll say that the reasons why I think law has been more successful than, um, than, than tech is because it's all about who do we empower to take risk in society? Who do we empower to take risk? We empower pre-wealthy people, as I call them, right? We empower men, right? We don't empower mothers, you know, we don't empower certain parts of people in society to take on those kinds of risks with their careers. And founding a startup is a tremendously risky proposition. It is extremely hard. You work 24 hours a day. It is exhausting work, right? It's really hard to do. And so a lot of women are not uh, encouraged to make that choice culturally. They're not encouraged through, you know, all kinds of subtle signals that say, no, no, go take a safer career. Law is a very safe career, right? If you are a risk averse person, law, um, law is very logical. So there's a reason that you saw kind of this, uh, the, the rapid differentiation in law becoming much more equal and much more gender diverse and other parts of the, of the, of the broader industry ecosystems like finance and, and tech, not so much. So that would bring to the point of uh, your um, comments to an opinion piece uh, from Bloomberg that I think mm. it was from a year ago, but you, recently you shared it again on your social media saying that women in tech are forever cast as adult, but rarely as a CEO. Yeah. So how many times, right? There's like the bad boy founder who's like a technical, and this is such a trope. It's like, it drives me crazy. You know, technical genius, but like can't manage a team, isn't really a human being, you know, whatever, that then brings in as a number two, or even a number three or whatever, someone to be the adult, you know, and so funny, after I posted that six different women reached out to me, and they're like, Oh, my God, when I was hired, I was introduced to the team as the adult in the room. Like, that's literally how I was, in, you know, not me personally, but like, these other women, and I'm like, Oh, my, you gotta be kidding me, right, which I mean, I kind of posted it because I was like, Yeah, this is I've just, I'd gotten so tired of the sort of bad boy founder mentality, I just find it ridiculous, you got to be an adult, like everybody should be an adult, right? At some point, when you employ people, you're responsible, you run a company, you know, and it's not to say I know several male, this is not a gen you know, generic kind of thing. I think it's more applicable in many ways to crypto, frankly, or to sort of like really niche kind of cutting edge tech fields. There are many, you know, CEOs or male CEOs who are extraordinary adults. Um, I know many of them personally, some of them are my friends, and I've learned a lot about, you know, management and everything from them. Um, but there is certainly a phenomenon where you bring in a technical genius, you, you build a company. And at some point, it's like, oh, you got to get, you know, you got to get the, the the room mom in here, right? And then that person comes in to be the grown up. And the idea that you cannot be a grown up and a visionary is absurd. Absurd. I have been a visionary multiple times over. I built product. I found I founded multiple teams from scratch, created all the strategy, everything around it, right? The idea that you can't set a vision and also be an effective manager, an effective uh, partner, an effective collaborator is ridiculous. It's about the requirements placed upon a person. Anyone can be coached, right? You can get an executive coach to anybody, but what are you directing them to do? You're like, oh, don't interfere with their genius. Don't put mundane things on it. It's like, well, some of that is, it's to this point, who are you building with and for, right? And if you're kind of building in your bubble of like tech genius, well, is that going to translate to a market? Is it going to translate to an inclusive market? Maybe, maybe not. Now, again, this is all about stages. There's a certain stage of a startup where, like I said, you're working 24 hours a day. I'm going to ask me how I know. 24 hours a day, you're just running, right? You're just trying to get something to market, get something out there, create a minimum viable product. All of that is kind of understood, right? But that doesn't mean that you can abandon adult responsibilities to your investors, to your team, you know what I mean? To your customers. All of that also has to happen. And this kind of bad boy excuse we give a lot of really young, you know, male, usually white, usually founders, um, I think it's inexcusable. And it's time for us to really start looking at that more closely and saying, how are we as a society 
enabling that kind of behavior and rewarding it, right? That should not be as easy to get away with as it is. So, you know, so I, I just I just think that we we need to really ask ourselves as society, you know, why why do we enable this behavior? You know, why do we laud and celebrate some of these people with, you know, accolades and awards and, and a lot of money and all of that, right? It's not to say they're not building brilliant things. They are. But you can build a brilliant thing and still be an adult. You know, you can still be an adult, you can still be responsible, you can still be thinking about the impact on society, all of these things can can go hand in hand with each other. And to some extent, it's about creating some pressure on some of these folks to say, you know, it's not enough to just be a genius. This all it goes back to artists too, right? It's not enough to be a crazy genius, you also have to be you're also part of a society and you play an outsized role in that society. Yeah, it's funny because uh, I've been involved with a public listed company for many years now. And uh, you have the, the board, which is, you know, the adult that is um, uh, the committee of the adult that is looking at different things and uh, uh, is giving advice. And it's a very important uh, aspect, I think, of any companies. And when, uh, you know, you look at the more like the startup space, there is no idea about governance, how to build governance, I think is just so important if you are looking especially if you're looking to get funding and uh, and this is like such an immature aspect me coming from public market to even very young private market Mm -hmm. of startup then you see the being an adult is uh, something that uh, yeah is uh, very difficult and rare to find especially if it's not in inside the the, the, the founders and then it is yeah. uh, is not even so easy to build because some of these founders they are not so open to get advisor on the board and they don't like to be challenged so it's kind of like an interesting um, an interesting topic but uh, moving on to education mm-hmm. so you also have a podcast that you do uh, in collaboration with Coindesk and also you are involved in the committee of a DeFi education fund. Mm-hmm. So that's like the billion dollar question, you know, how much education is important, what kind of education is needed or can be done better for a crypto to go mainstream? Yeah, so it's such an interesting question, you know, and I think it depends on who the audience is. So I think when it comes to policymakers and regulators, the kind of audience that my company, the Crypto Council focuses on, you know, there needs to be a lot because you can't regulate something you don't understand. Uh, when it comes to everyday users, part of this is the user interface should make it easier so that you don't have to be a technical genius. And I think, again, we're getting there. You shouldn't have to be some sort of like technical genius to access the opportunity, right? So I, I that's why I'm in favor of things like the spot ETF and things like that. Um, so people can have an opportunity to kind of engage uh, if they're thinking in an investment mindset. But if you're thinking from more of a user mindset, there, it has to just be easier. You shouldn't have to, you know, I, I use the internet every day. I use my mobile phone every day. I don't really know how it works. I mean, I do, but like, it's because of me. But like, most people have no idea how that works, right? You shouldn't have to necessarily know unless you want to know, right? It, that's that's really how some of this should operate. And I've said for a very long time, we'll know that blockchain has made it when no one's talking about it anymore. It's just like, no one talks about like HTTP. I mean, no one talks about this stuff, right? It's like, it's just a, it's a, hyper-technical term for things that are just kind of happening, you know, and you just, the features of it are what are going to be relevant and spotlighting the features is more important. Now, that being said, on the investment side specifically, which is a very narrow piece of what we're talking about with Web3 technologies, extremely narrow, okay? So I want to be very clear, like that is one very tiny sliver of the broader thing that I work on and that I care about. Regardless, when it comes to investing, I do think a lot of customer education is needed. What is the risk you're taking on? How does it compare to other opportunities? 
communities, you know, et cetera. Uh, we've talked a lot about in the industry about just-in-time education, the idea being, you know, uh, before you can invest in crypto or whatever it is, you know, you kind of get a video, you have to maybe take a quiz that makes sure that you understand, you know, what it is you're doing, right? Like what it is you're doing, that there is relative risk, you know, et cetera. And that's all well and good. But like, as I've said to local governments, including here in my own state of California, you know, there is a lot of predicate knowledge that has to go into that, right? Like for you to understand what is an investment, what is it not? Like the financial literacy piece has to come first. And so there becomes a question as a society, you know, we want a numerate culture, a literate culture, a financially literate culture. You know, we, all these things matter. And how do we uh, get that kind of education to be something that's happening at a societal level? So I often think about, you know, Sesame Street. So um, the, the, my mother claims I learned to read watching Sesame Street. I learned to read when I was uh, a little, just four years old, like I just turned four. And I watched Sesame Street. And so I put the letters together and, you know, whatnot, right? What if there were shows like that, right, that were about financial literacy? And so I see my kids watch TV and they watch educational TV and they watch you know, now the new Sesame Street. It's a show called Wally Kazam. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorite shows. It's like singing, you know, teaching kids letter sounds and phonics and all this stuff. There are math shows. You know, there's a show called Team Umizoomi. There's a show called Number Blocks. These teach number sense. I have not seen a show, and I haven't looked in a while, but I looked a couple of years ago. I haven't seen a single show telling people, teaching kids about, you know, money or like how things work. It, it, that would be a fun show. It could be, you know, there, there's, but that's not considered important. But I think it's more important. Most kids are going to learn to read. They're going to get it somehow. And yes, early literacy is crucially, don't get me wrong, okay? But this stuff is also important. And the reality is you have a window when kids are really little, when parents, I don't care who you are as a parent, unless you're like a full-on anti-tech parent, you're plopping your kids in front of a show. Okay, let's be real. That happens. If you had that option, you would have a chance for kids to understand, you know, what money is, what it isn't, how it works, why it matters. Like all of those things would be civics, similar. I learned about civics from um, Schoolhouse Rock. I don't see a show like that now, you know? So it's kind of like content that's being made, like all these kinds of things. There's so many opportunities to educate kids, not just through school, about what is happening in the world and why it matters and everything else. It's not just adults. By the time they're adults, it's a little late. You have to be, you know, you have to have financial literacy and numeracy before you can kind of engage and understand rel things like relative risk or opportunities or return or whatever it is. Those are pretty sophisticated concepts. And to get there, you have to have a, a ladder, like a build, right? You don't start off reading Anna Karenina. You start off reading, you know, cat, bat, sat, mat, right? Like then eventually maybe you get there, but you got to have a path to understanding some of this stuff. And I think not being honest about that is problematic. So I'm a person who talks a lot about, look, uh, I think a lot of people that have very paternalistic ideas about people who are poor have never been poor, been around poor people. But let me tell you, poor people I know are extremely judicious about how they spend their money. Okay. They're not blowing it on nonsense that contrary to sort of how some politicians or others want to make it sound. That's not a thing. But they also need to be scaffolded to understand like how is this, you know, how is a lottery ticket and a money market account and mutual fund and how would do all these things, how do they differ? Like, how do they differ? Why is putting your money in one more likely to yield a return than putting your money in something else? It isn't always obvious. So um, these are just things like, and it's not just for the poor, by the way, it's for anybody. It's anybody who is not who has not thought about finances. I was such a person. I had actually not thought a lot about money. My parents didn't really address that much with me growing up. Um, it was really more about academics and, you know, science. I got a lot of like education about science and chemistry, but no one really talked to me about money. 
I didn't really know, you know, and I was lucky I wasn't one of those kids. I had so many friends in college who got a credit card freshman year and some mail in offer totally blew up consumer debt, had no idea, didn't have any sense of the APR, any of that stuff. My parents were smart enough to give me a credit card and a limit and be like, this is the money you have. Here's how you do the basics around it, right? So I knew I had, I could do the basic subtraction around it, right? And they were monitoring it very closely uh, when I went to college. So I should, I should retract what I said because that was very useful for me. But it was kind of the first time I ever really thought about it. Um, but I have so many friends who just got in trouble. And by the way, I went to Harvard. These are smart people, right? But if you're not taught, how are you supposed to know? How are you supposed to know? It's true because when you go to school, um, they kind of open up um, the world to you, what happened, the history, you know, the all different kind of topics. But they don't tell you actually how to survive. They don't tell you how to build a business. These are like executive entrepreneurship program that you should actually do when you are young. Practical practical things. Exactly. Like, you know, like uh, I'm I'm not saying that everybody should become a a boy scout, right? And, or do, do something like that. But, um, I think, um, there are, there are something that is really missing, missing, uh, in very early school as well. And definitely universities. So, you know, we will see. We will see, but the, but maybe it's a question that also the education has changed a lot and uh, we have become more individualistic. So that's uh, maybe the program, the educational program may have changed according to how the society changed. In, in a way, I studied Greek and Latin and I, while I was studying them, I thought they were much more useful <laughs> than all the other, you know, study I've done afterwards. Anyway, regardless. So, Kayla, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your story, your uh, insight. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I, I don't get asked these questions as much as I would like, and it's so fun to, you know, to be able to talk about these things. So I really appreciate it. 